0: The following message is brought to you by the Teaching and Preaching Ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Genesis chapter number 1. Thank you so much for joining us this morning as we kick off another semester of our Connection Group Bible Studies. I'm excited to see what God's going to do in each and every one of our lives throughout this upcoming semester. We're going to be in Genesis chapter number 1. The pastor's going to bring a message entitled Sacred Community. We're going to look and see uh, about God. We're going to learn about Him this morning. And we're going to see that we are created in his image and how that is to affect the way we live our lives. Genesis chapter number one, beginning in verse number one, the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the waters, upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Well, we are wrapping up our Bible conference starting last Sunday, then Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and let me just say thank you, thank you, thank you for every one of you that prioritized that in your weekly schedule. We had one of our best turnouts for a Bible conference, and it just really encouraged my heart to see so many of you faithful each and every night to that, and I hope for those of you who were able to be a part, it really was edifying, encouraged you, and really helped you just in your personal walk with God and how you relate to the Word of God. Well, as Pastor Nick said a moment ago, this is our Connection Sunday and so we're going to dive into that theme, but we're going to do it in a somewhat interesting way, all right? We're going to go to Genesis chapter number 1 this morning and we're going to start our text reading. In fact, we're going to go just through verse 1, verse 2 and verse 3 and I hope by the time we get to the end of verse 3, you'll understand why I chose this particular text to speak on the subject of community. For the sake of time, uh, we're going to dive right into our Bible study here today. Well, Genesis chapter number one, verse number one, the scriptures say, in the beginning, God. Now, as you read throughout the Old Testament, you will find that there are many, many, many different names for God. And the reason this is, is because when we speak of something as vast and as rich and as profound as deity, you cannot sum up the essence of everything that that represents with a singular name. And so throughout scriptures, there are many names given to God. Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh, Elohim, and the list goes on and on and on. Because each and every one of these names gives us an insight into the specific nature of an aspect of who God is. So in the scriptures, the first name of God that we are presented with is this name, Elohim. So in the Hebrew language, the Bible would say, in the beginning, Elohim. Elohim. Now, if we were to define Elohim in the Hebrew language, it is a masculine, singular noun. So it has a masculine nature to it. It is a noun, but it is singular in nature. Now, what makes this particular noun interesting, it makes it somewhat fascinating, is because not only is it a singular noun, but in the Hebrew language, there is a plural ending that is attached Elohim, So the root of Elohim is actually singular in nature, but it has this added plural ending, or what in the English we might call a plural suffix. So the name Elohim has this singular understanding to it. Elohim is singular in nature, but it is also somehow plural in nature. It's kind of what we might refer to as an etymological anomaly. Singular but somehow also plural. Now, to illustrate this a little bit, uh, we could take the word goose. I'm if, if not going to bring any uh, goose on stage, but if there was a goose, I would look and say, look at that, goose. How many of these animals would I be referring to? One, all right? It's a singular noun. Now, in the English language, if we were going to make something plural, normally we would add uh, what letter to the end? S, all right? So we would say, oh, look at that goose. It's a singular noun. But then if we added a plural suffix to it, we would say, look at those goose is. No. In the English, the singular noun for goose would be goose. If we wanted to make it plural, we would say geese. That's a plural noun. We wouldn't say goose, singular noun, is. Goose is. It's a singular noun and then add a plural suffix to it. But in in, in kind of a similar way, in the Hebrew language, that's kind of what is happening here. There's a singular noun, the root noun of Elohim here is singular in nature, but for some odd, fascinating reason, in the Hebrew language, Elohim has a plural suffix. Why? If God is singular in nature, why add in the Hebrew a plural suffix? It's interesting, fascinating. I'm gonna let it hang there for just a moment because we're gonna get back to that in just a minute. Elohim, somehow singular, but also somehow a plural. Plurality, huh? That's interesting. Let's keep reading. In the beginning, this Elohim created, the Hebrew word for created is barath, It's a strong word, it it means to create, it means to produce. And so this Elohim here is this creative force. It goes on in verse number two, and the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of God moved. In verse number one, there's this Elohim, somehow singular, but also somehow plural in essence. We come to verse number two and we see the spirit. It's the word Rukach. It literally means wind or breath or spirit. It, it, it's a feminine noun. Now this is interesting. Elohim is a masculine noun. Not Ruach. That is a feminine noun. So we have this, this, this Elohim, somehow singular in nature, but also have, having this uh, plurality else. essence. We have Elohim, this masculine noun, but this Ruach, this is a feminine noun. Elohim, Ruach. Notice verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Notice the phrase, and God said. Verse number one, we see this Elohim, this creator, this singular but also plural entity. We see this spirit. But now here in verse number three, we see the word of God. In the Gospel of John, chapter number one and verse number one, the scriptures say, In the beginning was the Word. That's interesting. Where was this word in the beginning? Somebody might say, well, pastor, I, I don't see the word in Genesis chapter number one. He's right there. Genesis chapter number one, verse number three. In the beginning was the word. It goes on to say, and the word was with God. So somehow this word is distinct from this Elohim because he's with God. And then John chapter one goes on to say, but the word was God so somehow this word is distinct from God but also somehow this word is the same as God the gospel of John chapter 1 verse 14 goes on to say and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory who's that referring to Jesus Christ In fact, you could keep reading throughout the New Testament and in Colossians chapter number 1, we'll find that in verse number 16, speaking in the context of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, for by Him, for by Jesus Christ were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. You say, wait a second, I thought according to Genesis chapter number 1, it was this Elohim that brought... That created, that spoke. And yet in Colossians chapter number one, verse 16, we find that it was this word. It was this Jesus who created. It's interesting. In fact, so we're going back to Genesis here's here, verse number one, you have this Elohim. It's creative force, somehow singular in nature, but also in the etymology of the word, somehow plural in nature. Elohim, this masculine noun. But then you get a verse 2 and you see this spirit. This is a feminine noun. Then you come to verse number 3 and you find this word. Now skip down to Genesis chapter number 1 verse 26. And Elohim said... What does Elohim say? Let us. That's interesting. Adam and Eve hadn't been created yet. So who is the Godhead speaking to? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Huh. Huh. Here God is talking to himself in the third person using these plural pronouns. Us, our, our likeness. Go down to verse number 27. So God, Elohim, created man in his own image. In the image of God created he, him. Notice this, male and female created he, them. Remember, Elohim, masculine noun. We see here, and uh, there is spirit of the Ruach, feminine noun. And God comes, Elohim comes in verse number 27, and created man in his image, male and female. This is not the only place in the scripture where we find God speaking to himself in this third person plural. In Isaiah chapter number 6 verse 8, the prophet Isaiah hears a voice from heaven, hears God. And this is what God says. The voice of the Lord said, whom shall I send? Notice this. And who will go for us? God speaking a third person plural pronoun. From the very first verses in Scripture, Genesis chapter number 1, 2, and 3, the Scriptures begin to give us a glimpse into the plurality of the Godhead. But there are several other passages that begin to give us a glimpse into this as well. If we were to go to Matthew chapter number 3, verses 16 and 17, we find the story where Jesus is being baptized by John the baptizer. And it says in Matthew chapter number 3, and Jesus, notice this very carefully, Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And notice he saw the Spirit of God descending. So we see the Son of God. We now see the Spirit of God and lighting upon Him, verse 17, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the Father. 1 John chapter number 5 verse 7 says this, for there are 3 that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these 3 are 1. In fact, the apostle Paul in his writings to the church at Corinth he often will take the trinity and he speaks of them as if they are one 2 Corinthians chapter number 13 verse 14 says this the grace of the lord jesus christ and the love of god and the communion of the holy ghost be with you all amen so while the word Trinity is never referenced in the Scriptures, you can go from Genesis to Revelation, you'll never find the term Trinity thrown out there. While the word Trinity is never used, the concept of Trinity is found littered all throughout the Scriptures. In fact, we could take the rest of the service going from passage to passage to passage showing you where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are there together in the Word of God. It's just like we sang, ago, sang about a moment ago. We believe. Why? Three in one. And so we see this played out all throughout the Scriptures which leads us here to our first thought this morning and that is this, a description of the Trinity. A description of the Trinity. Uh, some throughout the centuries have attempted to use physical illustrations or metaphors to describe the Trinity, all right? And maybe when you were in Sunday school or possibly when you were taking a class, uh, there were these different illustrations, these different metaphors that got used to try to help us understand uh, what the Trinity was. And and I'll just be honest, it seemed like every time I heard one of these, they always fell just a little bit short. But let me give you a few. I remember one time somebody talking about... uh, the three-leaf clover, three-leaf clover. It's one clover, but it has these three parts. The Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit. And, and as a little kid, you know, the, okay, that's the Trinity. You know, that's three leaves, but it's on one clover. And, and so that was an illustration. I, I remember uh, the illustration of the egg, you know. An egg has three parts. It has a shell. It has a yolk. And then it has the uh, the white stuff. I don't know, what, was that stuff called? The white stuff. You know what I'm talking about? Like Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, these three. But they're, they're three parts, but it's one. And, and, and th- these illustrations would try to get used to, to help us kind of wrap our head around Trinity. I, I remember one time somebody used the illustration of H2O. You know what H2O is? You know, water compound. But this H2O, it can take on the form of ice. It's so a solid. It can take on the form of a liquid as water. It, it can take on the form as steam you know, and just like, you know, Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, it's like three, they're all the same, but different, ice, liquid, vapor, you know, and these illustrations would get used to try to describe, to try to help us understand this concept of Trinity. However, let me just say this, when you take something as theologically complex as the Trinity, and when we try to wrap our little finite little brains around the concept, and then package it in this nice little box and take our finger and say, this is what the Trinity is. You almost always fall short in accurately portraying the vast fullness of everything that it actually represents. So, I know for me, sometimes I have found it easier to push on the outer limits of what something is not And in my attempts to push on the outer limits of what something is not and define what something is not, it actually helps me get a deeper understanding for what that thing actually is. So let's kind of take a moment and apply that to the concept of Trinity. Let's name a couple of things that the Trinity is not. Let's push on the outer edges. Let's go over here. The first thing I want you to see is that the Trinity, as we push on this outer edge, the Trinity is not three separate gods. It's not what the Trinity is. We are not what theologians would refer to as polytheists. We don't believe that there are a lot of gods out there. And that is not what the scriptures are teaching here. They are not teaching that there are three distinct or separate gods running around. Let me give you some Old Testament and New Testament passages that speak to this. Deuteronomy chapter number 6, verse number 4. The Bible says, hear, O Israel, listen up, the Lord our God is one Lord. So even as we read these passages in Genesis chapter number 1, 2, and 3, we have to understand that while this plurality of the Godhead is explained, it is not saying that there are three gods. It is not saying that somehow we have this um, polytheistic view of who the deity is. It's, the Trinity is not three separate gods. We see that in the Old Testament. You'll also see it in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter number 8, verse number 6 says, "...but to us there is but one God." Old Testament, one God. New Testament, one God. So when we push on the outer limits over here, we see that the Trinity is not describing three separate gods. So let's go, let's go to another outer limit. Let's say this. Let's go over here. So if the Trinity is not three separate gods, some might say, well, then it's three parts of the same God. I'm going to say this from Scripture. The Trinity, too, is not three parts of the same God. Say, what do you mean? To say that something is a part of something is to indicate that it is not fully that thing. If I were to have a $100 bill and I were to rip it up in a bunch of pieces and give you each a piece, you don't have a $100 bill, do you? To have a part of something is not to have that thing. Holistically, you see, saying something is a part would indicate that it is not fully that thing. And yet, as you read through scriptures, you will find where God the Father is fully God, God the Son is fully God. God, the Holy Spirit, is fully God. So yes, over here the Trinity is not three separate gods, but the Trinity over here as we push on this far outer edge, the Trinity is not three parts of the same God. All three are God. In fact, Romans chapter number 1 verse 7 tells us that the Father is called God. Hebrews chapter number 1 verse 8, the Son is called God. In Acts chapter number 5, the Holy Spirit is called God. Not part of the God, but God. So the Trinity is not three separate gods. The Trinity is not three parts of the same God. The full essence, to have a comprehensive understanding of all that the Trinity is, lies somewhere in the space between. And rather than being able to take our finger and say, this is what the Holy Spirit is, We just have to let these outer limits of what it is not inform our understanding as to what it actually is. My friends, we are finite human beings. And if you and I could fully wrap our brains around everything that God actually is, would He really be that great of a God? (laughs) If after a few years of college and reading a few books and, you know, after memorizing a few verses, we're like, y- yep, I fully understand the complete, complex, you know, omniscient, um- powerful aspects of everything that God is, I wouldn't be much of a God. It was the 12th century theologian Richard Victor who said this, I-, I love this. He said, the scriptures declare that God is love. We find that in 1 John. However, this is 12th century, he said, however... For the fullest essence of love to truly exist, there has to be both one expressing love and another receiving that love. You see, now, if all God did was just give love out, if all he did was extend it, that would be one thing. But the Bible says that he doesn't just give love, he doesn't just extend love, he is the pure essence essence of agape. He is the pure essence of love. And what uh, we see Victor, uh, Richard Victor saying is that in order for the fullest essence of love to truly exist, there has to be both a giver and there also has to be a receiver. That said, while God could be good as a singular entity, he could only truly be the fullest essence of love if he existed in some sort of plurality. Because God is love. He's not just a part of it. He's not just the giving part of it. He's not just the receiving part of it. Before you and I, before humanity was ever created, God was the pure essence of love, which means there had to be a plurality to his nature that could give love, but also receive it. You see, God through the Trinity actually exists in constant and continual state of community. This is profound. That is to say, here's God the Father loving and giving to the Son. God the Son loving and honoring the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit loving and magnifying the Father. And so on and so forth in a continual ebb and flow of giving and receiving, of sharing and accepting. Some have called this relationship the cosmic Community. Other ancient theologians referred to this as the divine dance of deity. Others have called it the sacred flow of the fellowship. Giving and receiving. My friend, God is and always has been in a continual state of community. And the Trinity is a beautiful picture of how the church is supposed to interact one with another. You see, the church isn't a building. The church is a a group of saved, baptized believers. And this is how you and I are supposed to interact with one another, that we are supposed to be uh, connected in this continual ebb and flow of lovingly giving, of humbly receiving, of mutually honoring one another. The Trinity is the ultimate example to Christians of what fellowship within the local church is supposed to look like one with another. If God has always been and always will be in constant and continual community, how much more should you and we, you and me, as finite believers also choose to live our lives in continual community? sacred community as well. Which leads us to our final thought this morning, and that is this. Not only in this passage do we see a description of Trinity, but I want you to see a declaration for community. How many of you have ever uh, been up here to the Sequoia National Park? You guys been there before? How many of you have taken pictures with these big old redwood trees? You know what I'm talking about? You've been there, you've gotten the picture next to them. These things are unbelievable. If you've never been there, I'm telling you, you're going to want to check this thing out. The giant sequoias of California redwoods are nature's skyscrapers. Uh, Giant sequoias can grow to be about 30 feet in diameter and more than 250 feet tall. Uh, These giant sequoias can literally live to be 3,000 years old, with the oldest one on record living more than 3,500 years ago. Let that sink in for just a moment. 3,500 years old. That means by the time this tree was 3,000 years old, that's about the time when Columbus started to sail toward America. (laughs) I mean, mean, just let this sink in for a moment. This thing's 2,000 years old when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. (laughs) These are some old trees that have lived for a long time. The biggest of these behemoths is called the General Sherman. A giant sequoia in the Sequoia National Park, the General Sherman stands 275 feet tall, has a 102-foot circumference. Man, let that sink in. And weighs an incredible 2.7 million pounds. That's a whole lot of firewood right there. That'll get you through a cold winter. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, what's interesting about these sequoias and what allows them to grow, to be so large, to be so healthy, but, but not just what allows them to be so large, but what allows them to thrive and live so long is not what you see above the surface, but what is happening below the surface. One of the things that makes these sequoias unique is that as they grow large, is the reason is because they have these roots that intertwine and are interconnected underneath the surface. They literally interlock at their roots with each other, so when storms come, so when winds blow, the redwoods still stand. That is to say, if there's a place where one of the trees maybe doesn't have nutrients right beneath their soil, literally they can get nutrients from the root system of another tree. If the wind's begin to blow, the weight of that wind is not just pressing against one because they're, they're connected underneath the surface. It keeps them strong. This is one of the reasons why you will often find these uh, sequoia trees in pods or in groups. Rarely do you find one of these just kind of lonesome all by itself. And it's their interconnectedness. It's it's the fact that they are... Committed to connecting one with another that allows them to sustain and support each other. And so here's what I want to say living an active community within a local church, while it's not always fun, there will be storms, there will be winds, it will get difficult living in active community with a local church while it's not easy and while it's not always fun nor does it always even feel good nor is it always comfortable or convenient but just like for those redwoods it is vitally necessary to the spiritual development of your soul and there's a reason why there are several christians who begin to early on they begin to they begin to suffer they begin to die they're not connected They don't grow the way that maybe God's grace would desire to grow them. They don't grow as long and as large as others. They're not connected. This is one means of God's grace to sustain, to strengthen, and to develop His people. This would be a strong statement, but I believe it's true. Disciples. Disciples of Jesus who purposely isolate themselves from other disciples who choose to ignore actively living within a community of faith, are slowly committing spiritual suicide. You're going to kind of wither on the vine. Because you were made to belong. You were created to be a part. And if you want to thrive as a disciple, you've got to be connected to disciples. Disciples. Within the Trinity, this cosmic community, that, that divine dance of deity, that sacred flow of fellowship between Father and Son and Spirit, just like there's that connection, that community that exists there, so each person in the church has something to offer you, and you have something to offer them. Living in genuine spiritual community will stretch you it will challenge you, but it will also grow you and develop you like few other graces of the Christian experience. But we live in a day and age where it's not convenient. Yeah, you know, it's just how do I make this work to make margin of my life for that? It's not convenient. It's not. It's not easy. Yeah, this person's kind of difficult, and I don't really like this person. It's not easy. Well, if it was just more fun, maybe I'd, it's not always fun. And so in the 21st century, the majority of churches have abandoned sacred community, even though it makes up the very essence of the Trinity. This is not just optional if we're going to thrive. Being actively involved. In a community of faith, I'm not just talking about going to church, sitting there. I'm talking about being the church. Lovingly giving, humbly receiving, mutually honoring, sacrificing, being generous, laying down your rights, being long suffering, leaning into difficult things, pressing into what God's Spirit's leading you to do, to do the hard thing in community is what sustains. And like the redwoods, it's one of the graces that God uses to develop us, to strengthen us, to grow us, and allow us to really be the disciple he's wired us to be for the long haul. And we see this all beautifully, beautifully uh, pictured in the Trinity. It is amazing to me that That the Trinity invites you and me into an abiding relationship with the Godhead through union with Christ. The Bible says, when you place your faith and trust in Christ, He is in you and you are in Him. And in a very real sense, the Godhead, Trinity, invites you to dwell, to abide. To commune through union with Christ. Here's what's amazing. Is the Trinity offered that. God offers that while you were broken. Unhealthy. He offers this to you when you were undesirable and in your sin. He desired that with you. My friend, if God is that committed to spiritual relationship with you. I hope that you and I would be that committed to spiritual relationship with one another. Lovingly give, humbly receive, to mutually honor and to join in that that community. So here's the challenge I want you to prayerfully consider today. I want you to prayerfully consider to commit to community. To do more than just go to church. But to be sacrificial. To lean into the mess. To lean into the inconvenience. To lean into the complications. To lean into the storms. but, But to connect. To serve. Because there are people who need grace that God wants to pour through you. And whether you realize it or not, there is grace that you need that God wants to pour through someone else. And it might not be the person you want it from. But in His sovereignty, He's going to make it available to you nonetheless. Commit to community. Why? Because each person has something to offer you. And you have something to offer them. Please, don't deprive others of the grace that God wants to pour through you. If you don't make this a priority in your life, you will be depriving somebody of a grace that God wants to pour through your life. Lean into it. I don't want to encourage you to commit to community. We're created in the image of God. We're created for community. And this is how God in His infinite wisdom chose to allow us to commune with disciples. There's something he calls his local church. Don't just go to church, but really be a part of the church. Commit to community. Rows are great, and they have a place, but oftentimes circles are better. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.